the Podfix Network. Hello and welcome to episode 237 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about filmmaking. From indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in our very very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson, I'm writer, director and producer. I am Dom Lenoir, writer, director and producer as well. What? When when did you grade up? <laughs> <laughs> when did you get your scout badge? What? <laughs> it's true, you are. Also been a best boy. <laughs> oh, we don't want to talk about your private life. Uh, today on the podcast, we talk with the fantastic director, Ryan Andrew Hooper, whose latest film, The Toll, is out now. It's a darkly comic thriller about a lone toll booth operator with a past that is fast catching up with him. The movie is written by Matt Red and produced by Mark Hopkins and stars Michael Smiling, Ewan Ryan, Paul Kay, Gary Beadle, Steve Oran, Julian Glover, and and yes, Elwi. Amazing! What a cast he has got. So, Dom, why don't you give a little myself and you give a little roundup of what our lovely listeners can expect? We can find out how he made all of his shorts, the importance of knowing how each department works, how he funded his feature. And we also talk about how restriction can be restrictive, which sounds more obvious than it is. We also talk about being precise with how many shots you do while making your indie film and how having a strategy, strategy is vital. <laughs> What's a strategy? What's, what are you saying, Charles? <laughs> <laughs> Struggle with that one, didn't you? You're going to mock me back. I love it. Good for you. We also discussed his method of doing a different short as the concept for the feature rather than taking a, the intro or, or a first few scenes. Being precise. Precise? <laughs> precise, you've done it now. I'm getting you back. Precise. Don't forget to be precise, everyone. Uh, this is what happens when you do the intro late at night. Being precise on short, short lists. How you can differentiate yourself from others and dealing with the trials and tribulations of reviewers and reviews. We also talk about the importance of a pitch deck. Do you use a ring binder? Do you bring slides to the meeting? Or do you bring a stand? A full, what's it called? A full step and repeat. Well, maybe Ryan did. He talks about that. We also talk about framing scenes and being clear with your direction. All that is to come. Clearer than Giles' intro. <laughs> Clearer than Dom's precise. It was precisely clearer than Dom. Uh, <laughs> all that's to come on this week's Filmmakers Podcast. How are you, buddy? You seem on good spirits, which is also very nice. It's yeah, nice so to I'm hear. sort of. Uh, I'm still high on the the fumes of the the week the weekend. The metaphorical fumes, not not metaphorical. So. Why? Where have you uh, been, Dom? Yeah, we've just uh, we've both just done done fright vest with our respective films. How did yours mm. go? Uh, followers was was a, a surprise. It was. <laughs> no, got, I mean that in a nice way. Real or ones, real ones. I have no idea. But the film went down well. Um, the audience loved it. I think it's always nice to see it with an audience. Obviously, this whole time of editing it and getting it ready, uh, the producer Steve Jarvis and uh, Tracy Jarvis has done a brilliant job as well as the editor Will Honeyball. Just so well mm. um, on their own on a laptop, and suddenly now it's playing on a big screen, and it was quite incredible to see um, and it got a lot of laughs did really well yeah it's amazing it's alright got loads of four star reviews afterwards from all the wonderful Fright Fest uh, watchers should we call them we can we can indeed yeah and yours let's talk about when the screaming starts yes we've had some some very good four star reviews as well um, we've also had two different publications list us as a top 10 pick for Fright Fest which is pretty exciting uh, and we were the only film in the whole festival to play three times and sell out all of those screenings. Uh, and probably That's the only one impressive. to bring a, the only probably the only film to bring a stuffed cat to the uh, the premiere with a, a little bow tie and a tuxedo on. Do you mean you are the only person to bring a stuffed I, cat? I can neither to confirm nor deny that. I, <laughs> <laughs> this pictures, this proof of this. The Don Brawl stuff. His cat. name's Richard. Uh, Does and no I also, one cares. I also insisted that he was on the IMDb and in the film's credit as Richard the Stuffed Cat, played by himself. Uh, and I stand by my decision. Oh. 
It's, it's great producing, to be honest. It's great producing that you demand to bring the stuffed cat to the premiere. Actually, it was kind of a cool gimmick. You know, it was a really nice thing. You also brought a step and repeat, which is basically your own poster that you can sort of fold up. And you can, what is it called? Massive poster. What so it's, you call called, it? it's called a banner. Yeah. So, so, um, so we, right. I, I insisted that we we buy the biggest banner sort of humanly possible, and and then really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I> we, <laughs> we did, where it, did it, you go? Not, <laughs> the well, miniature uh, shop. I mean, it wasn't it, it, that no, big. It was some, <laughs> some kind of like magic online kind of system and, and then um, mm. and then you know mm. it's quite dark in Fright Fest and there's a bit of backlighting with uh, you know because it's all digital and the, all the cool sort of graphics on the screen so, there, so, yes. um, so we kind of uh, very cheekily set it up in Leicester Square and the, literally the entrance to you know to the, the whole the cinema Empire complex cinema. Yeah. And, and then just it was it was amazing I mean you know like the footfall of people looking at that poster no one else for, for better or for worse was doing it I think it's great marketing tactic you literally had it there forever you just left it there as well yeah we did so yeah, people yeah. would always yeah. see it when they walked past went oh what's playing and when the screaming starts what's that exactly. that was a great tactic actually I definitely recommend doing that. And did no one told you not to do it? And no one said, "Can you put no, that down?" I mean, just... I think I think a couple of security guards sort of, you know, um, sort of moseyed on 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 around to inspect that it it was safe. But yeah, I think I think there was sort of fairly. Um, I had a sort of a bit of a bodyguard pose on it, like I was guarding the poster, and I, I don't think, don't think they, they dared to <laughs> they dared to come near and interfere with. I mean, I think one of them asked, "Is this part of the festival?" And I was like, "Well, yeah." I mean, because technically it, it is. is. Yeah, and the mate, they probably didn't want to mess with a guy who was holding a stuffed cat. <laughs> exactly. That's probably what exactly. it was. Absolutely. His own bow tie on. Did you actually get that made to fit that cat? No. So it was Connor's mum, I believe, Connor the director. Uh, mm. Who? who um, what the cat was Connor's mum? No, no. It's yeah, like she's quite, quite good at transformation. <laughs> no, the, Connor, Connor's mum I think fitted the the bow tie um, and, mm. and reluctantly prized Richard from my my hands uh, after the, Sweaty, the evening of shenanigans. Grasp. Yeah. It, it was a lovely screening. I really enjoyed the movie. I've not seen any of it before. And I thought When the Screamer Starts was fantastic. And what a brilliant debut from Conor Burrow, the director. I thought it was honestly a delight. Some of the performances were spectacular. I really enjoyed it. I re me and you were laughing. I know you were laughing at your own movie, but I was allowed I, I, to okay. laugh at it. Objectively, was my cameo yeah. good or was my cameo not good? Your, your cameo was good. Yeah. Your cameo yeah. was good. I was surprised. I was, I was also told I was playing myself, which I'm, I'm not sure is a, so much of a compliment. <laughs> I'm a suspicious cinema goer for anyone who hasn't seen the film. You are a suspicious cinema goer. So tell us, tell us, Don, when will when the screen starts to be released? Do we know yet? When can we actually people can buy this movie? Well, we've actually got two more major festival announcements um, that will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So we're kind okay. of keeping a pretty tight lid on the distribution side while we figure all that side out and uh, work out when our release schedule is. Uh, mm, but the, the short okay. answer is is very soon uh, on all fronts and there's lots of news coming out. What did you learn from Fright Fest this time? I learned that Fright Fest is, it's a very fan-friendly festival. Like, I mean, mm. a, lot, a lot of festivals, people go there for the prestige and there's a lot of, uh, you know, black tie and, and sort of after parties and, and things like this. But Fright Fest has Fright a Fest very... Fright Fest is not that. Fright <laughs> Fest is not that. Um, but the fans are very dedicated. Um, you know, yeah. real sort of horror fans. They go there because they love films. They love the movies. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's quite a nice atmosphere to sort of go into for a festival. Um, and it was pretty yeah. cool in Cineworld because everything was sort of digital. So you had all these like Fright Fest blood sort of on the stairs and, and the, the billboards and everything. So it was, it was a pretty cool experience. It was. So, and all the staff are dressed up in various yeah. uh, horror outfits. And it's got that real Comic-Con vibe to it, yes. I think. Yeah. And it's nice. And uh, and there was some, you know, saying the after parties, they actually did happen and they were really cool, actually. I really enjoyed yeah. them. Considering it's been COVID, considering there has been issues, yeah. it was really good to get together with your cast crew teams and just all open up for the first time in terms of you know being able to go somewhere and talk properly i loved that mm. i really did i enjoyed seeing so many amazing filmmakers there so yep. many i got to see the last right as well which is leroy kincaid's ah, yes. yep. uh, and chloe's movie i loved it really super and i saw the kindred as well which is my producers of followers who produced it with me uh they produced kindred and it's jamie patterson's film and i love that and jamie's been on the podcast and he's such yeah a cool he, he was great fun wasn't he yeah really good so i had a great time i really enjoyed it and like i say so good to see so many indie filmmakers there and so many people came up to say hello and i really enjoyed that 
So yeah, yeah. keep doing so. that. Turn up to festivals and say hello to other filmmakers. Yeah, love it. Right, good. Let's get to today's episode, shall we, Dom? Unless we've got any more exciting things and facts and wisdom. No, just to just to <laughs> just to let you know that there there will be more than a few puns about the word toll. Uh, just to prepare you. Oh, I might have cut them out, Dom. If you if you cut them out, there's going to be trouble. It'll be trouble, young man. Wait, you, I thought you were going to do a pun then about. I'd have been tolling you or something, or I'd have, uh, oh, you, you'd, be pay, you'd have to pay oh, the toll. I'll, I'll, I'll be tolling. I'll be tolling you off. <laughs> Sounds too sexual. Uh, right here it is. Let's get to today's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. Myself and Dom sat down with the fantastic Ryan Andrew Hooper. The toll is out now. Do go support indie films. It's brilliant. Support it, it and enjoy this podcast and tell all your pals about this podcast. That's how we grow and go join us on our Patreon site. We will see you next Tuesday, as always. Uh, enjoy this week's podcast. Have fun. Hey. Hey, guys. I really enjoyed the film. The Toll is brilliant. It's really great. Your debut movie as well. It's really nice to see that, you know, and great cast. The first time you do it, it's frightening. How was that for you then, that first time? Because it is, you just, you have no expectation. It's kind of like a short, but it's like the biggest. It's like a long. Like four weeks short you've ever made. Yeah, it's a long, not a short. Nice, Tom. Yeah, I, I think, I think for me, like, it was just something I'd wanted to do for such a long time. Mm. It was just excitement. And I think we ended up, we got fully funded through a micro-budget film scheme, basically. I think in England, it was like eye features yeah. or, film or microwave. So we got the Welsh version is called Cinematic. So like very ambitious name. Um, and <laughs> that meant that the money was there, but we, we just sort of nothing. We, we were sat on for about a year until Mark, the producer, came on board. Uh, and we just sort of, he came on board, I think a couple of months after he, he joined, we were sort of in prep. So um, there was a lot of lead time waiting to do it. And then it was like all systems go, which meant that they, weirdly then there wasn't much time to sort of be nervous. It was just, I think like you guys are probably in it now. You don't really have much time to think. You're like... You're just solving problems. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what fire do I put out today? What do I do today? You know, I think because it's something I've just always wanted to do and I dreamed about doing since I was a kid. I just loved every second of it. You know? So it was just like, I'm just going to take this all in because I think the, the sort of hit rate of another a director making a second movie is very low. I mean, I think very it's like 90 odd percent never make mm-hmm. another one. So I looked you guys up and I was like, oh, Jesus, he's done way more than me. Um, <laughs> so it's like, just for me, it was like, I should try and enjoy every second of it because I'm, I desperately want to do it again, but I might not be able to. I love that attitude. That's really, because a lot of people go, and I know I did with my, debut feature I was absolutely cacking my pants and I couldn't get over the fact that I'm making a movie and I'd same as you Ryan I've been trying to make a movie for so long so many years and to suddenly when it happened I I freaked out and uh, there's this loads of behind the scenes of me just sort of not you know now I'm like I'm totally different I'm like no it's fine and I think because maybe it was a studio movie as well the pressure was huge and I was like oh my god I'll never make another movie again and I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have I don't know about you Dom because I know you'd made two other features before you made your first sort of major feature yeah I, I think I had a slightly different route in a sense I mean don't, don't get me wrong there was definitely stressful moments like very stressful like there's a couple yeah. of days when you don't think you're going to make it and you know you've got eight pages and like all your main cast and stunts uh, and the weather's changing and if you don't get it, you don't get it. So there were there were some horrendous bits, but because I'd done like a couple of like really low budget features before this one, and I'd also sort of filmed like abroad on on a couple of shorts, the stress of those <laughs> like, was so high that nothing sort of compared in in comparison. So I'd kind of I'd kind of got that stress out of the way, but on you know films that arguably weren't particularly good. So that, that was kind of a a bonus for me. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess maybe if in, t- in terms of just for the toll, there, w- there wasn't really an, enough time to sort of have that level of nerves really. And I think like Dom, possibly the I had you know made a lot of stuff prior to uh, the toll, a lot of shorts. Yeah, a, a, lo- a load of stuff, and then and stuff for like I worked for a charity where we made you know, bucket loads of films with that. And I'd run a business, you know, run a sort of corporate video type thing. Mm-hmm. I was used to working with no time, no money, etc. you know. Doing all the jobs, producing it yourself. Yeah. We had to do everything. So it was like, even now I sort of can't help but get my sort of fingers stuck into like things, you know, yes. trying to get into cinemas and arranging Q and A's and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, just because it's what you, you're used to, you know, I'm sure it's the same for you, but it's just what you, you're used to because you 
you nobody else to do it for you. Yeah, you grew up that way. So you're like, well, I can't help doing that. I, and I, I agree. I think I think that's a good thing, though. I think it's good that you've learned to do all the the areas. You've probably held the boom. You've held the camera. You've had, you know, you've worked out how much money you've got and how much things cost. And I think that's a much better way of diving into a feature than not doing that and going, well, I don't know what I'm doing and someone else should be doing that. You're like, I understand someone else's job. And I think that's, I think that's one of the most important things you can do. And I always say, jump on other people's sets whenever you can in whatever role you can as if you want to be a director producer because you learn what they do because it's hard work all of those roles yeah i started my first sort of gig was as a boom up on a, a low budget mm. film that was shot in a week it was like a gangster it was a, a vampire gambling film yeah. um and i was a boom on that and that was brutal i mean that was like 15 hour days of you know people being like, like you know it was all shot on one location in a church and it was, it was pretty brutal. High stakes, wasn't it? High stakes. High stakes, yeah. It was just because I, uh, I think it's because I played the guitar. They were like, ah, oh, right, boom. What? Yeah, that's the only reason <laughs> I could think. But the boom up they had was like a really experienced guy yeah. uh, called Dick and um, taught me loads of stuff. And what it does, what it did teach me is like the importance of understanding each department. You know, everybody thinks they're the most important department. Mm -hmm. But with sound, sound often gets, you know, shit on. People don't care, you know, they don't think like, oh, is there a plane going over or there's this or whatever, or whatever kind of popping noise or whatever um, is going on. It's a lot harder to fix that in post than anything else. Yes. Um, yeah. So it gave me an appreciation for sort of the, the difficulties of it. And like one of my, my sound recorders is one of my best mates. I know how much I can push him. And he's pushed pretty hard on the toll because we were the the uh, weather that we were filming in was pretty mental. And the fact that you did it and then you realised that you can't change an aeroplane sound. So it meant that when you were on set, if you heard from your sound person and they went, oh, no, no, you need to go again. You actually went, I'm going to listen. Because often, oftentimes most directors go, but I had an amazing performance and I'll fix it later. And then you come to later and you go, yeah, you can't use that take. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the worst thing to be sitting there watching the waveform and they'd be like, no, well, it's embedded in. Like, I, you know, it's not, Yeah, it's not magic what we can do. It's one of those things, isn't it? With like, it, they're the, sort of like the gatekeepers to your, your, your happiness with a take. Like, you know, the camera department, if, if the camera take isn't good, you'll, you'll know about it. They'll probably stop filming or they'll, they'll make it very vocal. And then you get to the end of the take, everyone's excited. The actors are, have given the performance. You as a director are like, yeah, this is amazing. And you look around at the sound guy and they're doing that face like they're delivering some yeah. bad medical news to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to tell you, sir. You're sitting down. And you're like, but, but couldn't it be all right? No, it's no. not all right. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's like they are the gatekeepers, the final gatekeepers, because they're the ones who can... Yeah, there's a lot going on. You mentioned every can's on, but sometimes you don't want them on or you want to be on set or you want to... Mm, um, be in the moment. And, yeah, you want to be, yeah. And, yeah. You know, so it's... Um, I know there's some directors who are like quite a long way away from set sometimes and do everything remotely with with monitors and stuff, but it's not the way I like, because it's not the way I've ever done it. Like I, mm. Christ, I never had monitors. We you know, started with DSLRs. Yeah. You know, you'd have to get a special thing, a lead and everything. And it's just like, oh, you just have to trust that the camera, it's like old school almost. Oh, really? Yeah, it's old school. Yeah, I love that. You have to get a special thing like a cable. <laughs> And I agree with you. I, I think it's great to, like, especially with, with acting, just to watch the acting and be up close to it. I, I'm, you know, I know a lot of people that like the monitor and they're spotting things on set. And I think it's, there's certain like, you know, when you're doing like a big wide shot or a big action scene, you, you need to be looking at a big monitor sometimes, but being close to them, you, you spot things uh, and you react, I think emotionally, whereas watching a screen far away, you don't quite get that. Yeah, exactly. I think that's sort of the way that I like to, you know, you, cause you pick things that, like you said about working on other people's stuff. Like I worked on a, a mate of mine's film and uh, I think he was an editor beforehand and then he became a director but he prevised everything and wow. i literally mean everything the entire film was prevised on a and he had a little monitor next to his monitor with the quite detailed previs mm -hmm. and it was all on sets as well so like it was, it was literally built the whole thing and he he almost never watched the actors because he was more in you know thinking right i've done a close-up here at and you have the time code set up you know you had the whole thing forensically planned out 
Oh. And I remember thinking, I find that like a weird way to work. It's like a, it's quite a sanitized way of working. Yeah. It's, it's like a commercial. It's like yeah. you're trying to hit the beat to fit in a time slot. Well, the Coen brothers work that way. They're very, but they're the Coen brothers, <laughs> you know. That's a different kettle of fish, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Like, but if you're talking your first feature and you're going, no, no, microsecond here, I've got that yeah. look. That's pain. Actors hate it for one. You can't yeah, get in a rhythm. Yeah, massively, yeah. And in the edit, you've got no choice. Yeah, you have no latitude whatsoever. So it's, it's and it's not as fun. It's like being in prison. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you have a prison of your own making, Jimmy. It's a creative prison, you know. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Restrictions are, uh, can be a positive thing creative, creatively, right? But yeah. I think when you're so, like the stuff we did with Paul Kay. Mm, I love Paul um, Kay. He loves, yeah, he loves improv. And the, the writer was on set a lot of the time. So they were able to work together, to sort of the two of them and the three of us and me and Paul. And we were able to sort of, I didn't want Paul to do a Welsh accent to begin with. But he wanted to do one, and we thought, right, oh, you know, here we go. There's so many, you know, like dodgy Welsh accents everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank and you. Then, you know, like it's a bit like if someone from West Wales doesn't sound like someone from East Wales, and you know, like yeah. like like everywhere really. But he pulled it off pretty well, and then we gave us a bit of latitude yeah. in what it is that we were able to to do, and and what his character was, and we gave him the, the opportunity to sort of to improv as well and use his strengths mm. to add to the project. And imagine if you were doing what, like you're, the, the guy did that you helped on that film and you've now got Paul Kay wants to improvise and th- throw things out there and Michael Smiley wants to change no stuff. Paul. Yeah, and now you can't because he's going, no, no, because this is set in a box and you, I don't know, I don't know how you'd work that way. No, really. uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it, in, the film didn't turn out brilliantly, but in his past as an editor, he's obviously incredibly fastidious. So mm. yeah, that was his way of working, but it's not, I mean, everyone's different and it's not a way, like I wouldn't do a Fincher does and have like a billion takes. No. Well, we can't afford it for one, can we? <laughs> that's the main thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. You know, I, I, I was watching, um, so watching yesterday, you know, Promising Young Woman I watched yes, last night. Yeah. It's great, isn't it? It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there's a cool scene with Alison Brie and, uh, Kerry Mulligan when they first meet at the tables. This is a spoiler if anyone hasn't seen it. It's not really a spoiler, but they, I was watching it and you can't help but do this. You end up looking at how many setups they have. Mm-hmm. And it was like, there was a wide, there was two clean singles. There was like an angle single on each of them. And then there was a, a low angle looking up where there was like a light fixture that was red above her head. It was beautiful shots. Right? Mm-hmm. I remember thinking on the toll, that would have been wide, single, single. Boom. And I would, that would have been it. And I would have had two takes because we yeah. didn't have enough time. Yes. So that's the benefit of money. I, think. I guess from my perspective, uh, and it, it's, it, it's kind of a positive really into how, how much you went into the characterization of, of the characters. But I wasn't, although I was enjoying, you know, the cinematography, because each of the characters were so unique and they had such distinctive kind of traits to them and, and I was so interested in what was going on with them, I felt like the attention really was on the performances and, and their their kind of behaviour in, in a way. And also maybe the story that you sort of jumping backwards with, with the bits of the details, there was a bit of that kind of mystery and keeping in your toes. But I, I didn't see that as a negative, um, not having, you know, hundreds of, of angles because I was I was so kind of engrossed in the, the character side of it. I think it, it fits well with a Western aesthetic as well anyway, is mm-hmm. that like, you know, quite often they were, you, know, you didn't have to have a billion and one take because... You know, they're shooting on films. They again, they wouldn't have had time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and and the money probably to sort of spend on it. But then also, you know, you're taking the benefit of giving the actor the opportunity to perform. Yeah, and I think that's what you know. It, there was a sort of barometer on set, which was sort of like I guess like logic, and if it looks cool, and and it was because it was a strategy towards making a, a low budget film. Right, so the strategy for us was we had very limited money. I think on screen budget was maybe 250 grand something like that mm-hmm. if that and we had to decide like there's different ways of doing it so other films in the previous in the scheme that have happened prior to us and then other films as well that have happened you know low budget movies is is a tendency to think single location two-hander mm-hmm. you know and there's loads of great films like that you know there's the the one about the guys who did oh, i forgot what it's called the one with the guys who did um the haunting of hill house where uh, it's Hush, I think it is, when she's Hush, deaf. Yeah. Yes, you know, yeah. Really, really good film, right? You know, set in one location, really mm-hmm. interesting idea. Whatever. So I'm not nagging on those types of films, but it's like, I don't want to make no, that. Sure. So I might never make another one. So 
like, fuck it. Sorry if I have to beep that up. Fuck it. Let's just go nuts. Let's just swing for the rafters. Let's go cars, as many locations as we can. Beautiful. Most cast we can get. Yeah. As much, you know, just really, really swing and work with animals. Mm. Everything we could do. Yeah. Yeah. That that was the idea. And I thought it might even, you know, strategically thinking it might buy you a little bit of good grace with the critics as well, who may overlook some of the more ropey moments and think, well, Lisa tries have been different, you know. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I do. I think you've sometimes got to go for it, haven't you? And swing. Otherwise, you're being too safe. And now you've made a splash and you've made a brilliant film. And I think mm. that's the point. You could have easily done this safe, kept it all tight in the toll booth and not had this big, you know, Tarantino-esque uh, stories expanse. that you, you've put in Expanse. Let's, if you don't mind, just tell people what the toll is about and we'll play the trailer and then we can dive into it. So the, the toll is a, a West William Western about a, a toll booth operator whose past catches up with him one day and all hell breaks loose. Most people's lives could be considered unremarkable. Aside for one or two defining moments. Moments where people find out who they really are. Which way the Irish ferries, mate? The search is over. You did want me to do that, didn't you? Ten, ten. Oh, I don't know the call for this. There's been a terrorist incident. A what? They were speaking their own language. They weren't speaking in English. You don't think they could have been speaking Welsh? This gentleman been sent by a crime family. We're intent on taking over your turf. Hand over your takings. How much is it? One pound twenty. Oh, come on. We usually encourage tourists to stick to sightseeing. Anything unusual today? Do you have anything to chop him up with? Nothing out of the obvious. What can anyone tell me about our friend in the toll booth? No one will tell the truth when it comes to you. I want to know why. I done a terrible thing a long time ago. Somebody's gonna have to pay for it. Shit just got dark, boy. I am a man of action. How much of what you told me is true? Justice you're looking for. This is your last chance. Where'd you ride his car? It's funny, isn't it, when we have to do press for our, you know, our films, you suddenly have to get really kind of good at doing the, some interviews want a certain little soundbite, others are like ours, which are rambling and just let's talk about filmmaking total. And yeah, you get used to sort of saying certain things. I find it fascinating when people come on the pod and they, they've not practiced or they don't know their own, you know, pitch and you're like, okay, you're just going to talk about this for 20 minutes? Is it? Yeah, you're not getting money from us. Um, I love it. Uh, all right, so you mentioned the scheme that you got the money for and they put all the money and that's amazing. Let's talk about how that happened because obviously you've not made a feature, but you made all these amazing shorts and obviously you, you were sort of making a name for yourself slightly, but still making a feature, that leap to making a feature is, everyone says it all the time, how do I jump from making a short with my pals and people I can get together to making a feature? Like you said, you've been trying to make it or wanted to make one since you were a kid. How did it come about? How did you even start that process? How did you do the pitching? What worked for you? So, I mean, Matt and I, we were strategic. We had like a five-year plan of what it is that we wanted to do. So cinematic had happened once before and I'd been involved in that and I, we, we got shortlisted. It was a documentary about a guy I knew who he, who he thought his grandfather was a spy and it's actually been made sort of... You know, it's taken a long time to get there, but it's like it's it's going to come out soon, hopefully. I was a producer on that. We came very close, went through the whole process, but we didn't get through. So there was a there was another schema at the same time for shorts called the Beacons. So Matt and I had a strategy of saying, right, what we'll do is we will try and get funding for a short film. Um, we'll use that as proof of concept to then when we go to pitch for the feature through the you know the cinematic scheme when it runs again. 
we'll have something that we can physically show them of what it is, you know, Perfect. what it is that I can do. So that was the plan. So the feature came first. That's the difference, which I think is important because, and then with that, what was important to me was that the short wasn't the first 10 pages of the feature. Mm-hmm. Because again, you will end up getting lazy critical reviews of saying, well, they've just, they did a short and then they've expanded it. And it's not, you know, it's just a, a feature, which is just an idea that could have been done in a short. Mm. And so the short is very different to the feature. It's, it's, you know, in no way kind of similar. Except it's, it's set in a toll booth. Except it's set in a toll booth. So it's, <laughs> and it's shot, it's shot almost tight at night and there's kind of a westerny feel to it. But, mm. um, you know, it was really just, I cut a trailer of that. So I sort of sat down and watched about a billion YouTube videos of like mm. how you cut you know, all the little tricks that they use. You know, and if you're only shooting in a pitch, you can use like, you know, I use the music from Hello, I Water and, you know, stuff like that. Exactly. It's, it's a pitch. Yeah, perfect, perfect. When Matt and I pitched for those things, we were quite sort of, again, strategic in how we wanted to pitch things. So the one thing we didn't want to rely on was technology working. So we did like an analog pitch is the best way to describe it. I think one in my previous job, I'd learned to have to be a bit of a, like a design, like graphic design stuff. So I made things mm-hmm to give to the uh, people on the pitching panel. Like, so I made like mock up air fresheners with the triplets masks on them and stuff. And then I made this sort of lookbook that was a character. It was a ring bound character lookbook, which I gave to everybody and they could wanted them to have something they could take away. So maybe they would put it on their desk, forget about it. And then a couple of weeks later, see it and think, Oh yeah, this was interesting. I remember that guy. I remember those guys. Yeah. Nice. And then all of our, slides so to speak were printed out on sort of a2 pages and they were we brought a stand with us oh wow um and we printed them out and we had them with us um and we could physically show them you know and we were never reliant then on what like dom drop it drop it out just how do we like like technology happens you mean you never, you never know what you set up to do so true, yeah. <laughs> don't be like dom <laughs> we did the same thing for like the short and then we we sort of ramped it up for the the feature pitch so when we did the short we purposely went in without a producer attached because we were hoping to find someone and say, well, if we get the money, we can find a producer and they can do the, the short and they can do the feature, which is what happened. You know, that's, that's ultimately what happened uh, in terms of the production company that came on board. So yeah, it was always very, very strategic about, you know, and trying to work out a way to differentiate ourselves mm. from the other, you know, incredibly talented people who were also pitching, you know. I think we were, we were in one, they did a lot of like, workshops and stuff as part of the scheme and I think I was sitting in one and there was one of the people in there was like a guy who'd done bucket load produced a bucket load of features and his director was a like a Fulbright genius scholar like a Rhodes scholar and I was like oh Jesus like she is gonna get the money because I would give it to her do you know what I mean like she's (laughs) she sounds incredibly impressive like so you always think like oh who's gonna get who isn't gonna get was it just one was it just one amount of funding there were three we were very strategic we were very like we want to be trying to be memorable we want to go to all the workshops really make an effort show that we care you know say that we have a plan of what it is that we want to do being able to cut show a trailer was really useful because I'm not really a fan of sizzle reels like you know pinching other director stuff I just think I never really understood them I I know what you mean sometimes it's needs must and I get why people do it and I've done it but again you're just showing someone else's work that you've edited together well Mm, yeah I get that it's like well is it going to look like that are you ever going to have that much money that it's going to look like Joe Wright or Tarantino or you know Danny Boyle really the answer is no, but so I like that attitude, but it's tr- it's harder for some people, I think, to go and just go make a short or a proof of concept themselves because that can look really crap. Yeah, we were incredibly lucky to be able to do that. You know, really, really, like I said, it was part of the strategy, but we were lucky mm. to be able to do that. You know, I think it's interesting what what you did as well with with the short being different to the feature is because you kind of I think one thing that you know is a, is a potential pitfall when you're doing those kind of you know teaser trailers or something as a as a pitch concept is that you don't put in, because you think, oh, I'm just doing a short version of this, or I'm not doing this version of that. Everyone involved kind of maybe thinks, all right, well, it's it's something, but it might not do anything. Whereas if it's its own sort of entity and you're creating it as a short, uh, I, I feel people you know, always sort of really get on board when it is a self-contained thing for its own kind of purposes, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I, that's totally correct. You know, I think you know, there's just this, I think, you know, must have been the same for you guys. You've heard so many stories of people who made a first time feature that where a short came first. Yes, totally. And it, 
this, the, the, it's so common that there's a, you know, like the a review, which is, oh, well, it's just, you know, it should have been a, just stayed as a short. And it's just like, oh. Shut up. Except with like whiplash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. And, and then, I said Je- Jennifer Kent did Babadook, you know. Do, yeah. Oh, yeah. Her short for that was very different to what the feature turned out to be, you know. Again, that's just lazy journalism. And again, to talk about reviews, they piss us off. And they are for you now in terms of your your releases. Like when this comes out, your film will have just come out. It's coming out on Tuesday. So it's fresh for you. But me and Dom have been through this and it's wound me up. You know, some of the reviews I've got have wound me up so much. They've hurt. They've really made, you know, really got upset about it. And my sort of, if any advice I can part is, it stops hurting after a while and these people don't mean shit. You know, you you kind of just take the good ones and forget the people who everyone's going to slag it off. They're just because people like to and they don't care how much it was made for. Well, we, we, had, a, we had a good anecdote on one, on one of ours. One of the sort of major publications, I won't say who, uh, gave gave us not not a great review for for one of the films, but we had the we had the indie TV tracker on them, and they'd watched like the first like ten minutes or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hadn't watched the rest of the film, and then they'd given this kind of blanket you know review of the whole thing, and you think like. How can you be putting that out in a major publication when you haven't even watched? What you know, just don't. And there's, there's a lot like that. I think that just don't take it seriously, and they they just think, oh, it's a smaller indie film or, or whatever. And yeah, yeah. So if people do say, oh, they should have been a short, or it's you know what, whatever people say, I just take all that and just go, I don't care. Yeah, we made a feature. You made a feature. Up yours, motherfuckers. Yeah. Deal, with, deal yeah. with it. I think I think my my sort of feeling was a little bit was like one, everyone's entitled to their opinion, which and you should respect. And there might be things that you can take from it that would be you know make you better. Mm-hmm. And you have to sort of learn to filter that out. But there's also the fact of thinking like I probably know more about films than this person who's writing, and exactly. I definitely know more yeah. about making films than uh-huh. this person. So I think now, having dealt with it a few times. I just take those. I, uh, to be honest, I try not to read them unless someone sends me the good ones. The PR sends me the good ones. I literally now don't. And I think it can be a, a horrible hole that you can fall into when you start trying to read all the reviews because it hurts oh, every yeah. time you get a new one. Oh, there's a new review. Please be. Oh, my God. And you go through that depression stage again. So my advice would be not <laughs> because just read the headline and go, move on. Because it hurts. It does. And it does. And you take it personally. Or send out the review request yourself so it's harder for them to give you a bad review. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is from me, mate. So, yeah. But I, I do think that's because it does. And it does sit with you. What I've learned from sort of my time is is no one cares about how much your other films were made for they don't it, it's almost like cool you made that or they'll sort of and Dom knows this as well just ignore those and go let's pretend you're starting again they were the, almost like especially in Hollywood terms that you made some sh- uh, features that were kind of shorts you know what I mean in terms of budget wise for them so they just do and certainly the people we're talking to now it's kind of like cool you made them all right it, it, it doesn't, it's all what I think it is about is proving. It's track record proving you can make a film, you can go through the trenches, you can deliver at the end of the day and you're still standing and still going, yeah, I fancy doing this still. That's huge. And for me, when I'm working as a producer and new filmmakers come to me, if they've made a film before, it doesn't matter how terrible it is, I will pay attention and go, do you know what? They've done it. They know how hard it is because there's nothing worse for me and Don, whatever's coming on as producers, if a filmmaker hasn't done it, we now have to hold their hand much more than you would for someone who who has been through the trenches, doesn't matter what state that film's in. So you're already in a great place. The fact you've made a brilliant film and you're now going, yeah, this is my film. Um, but I'd never be, I'd never worry about, you know, anyone caring how much it was made for in terms of it's, you know, it's, it, you've, you've, your flag is there and this is what we made. This is what we've done. And it's, it's great. It really is. This intermission is brought to you by Massive. Massive. As we all know, Robbie has sadly left us, but he's joined a massive movie studio. And there, his horrible boss has tasked him with developing movie pitches. So, Robbie, what is his crazy idea this week? Okay, I got a difficult one, Giles. It's a hot property. Oh. Well, my boss, he's obsessed with Gremlins. Mm-hmm. You know, the Gremlins mm-hmm. franchise, he loves it. He wants to make a new yeah. Gremlins film. <gasps> Yeah. Oh my gosh. But he needs a new gimmick. You know, of course, we all know the gremlins. You can't feed them after midnight. If you do, they turn into monsters. But how do we make them more intimidating? How do we make them more fierce? How about we make them big? 
like massive. You make them big. I like. I like yeah, like that. crazy. Yeah, so crazy they're like stomping the city. Trolling. They're walking around. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, making yeah. them massive. Okay, awesome. Well, where can it take place? I mean, we had the previous locations, like maybe it was New York, Chicago. What, what, what can we? Where are we going to set the third film? Oh, somewhere glamorous. How about the city of Hull? Right. Okay. City of Hull. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty glamorous. Yeah. You're not wrong. Okay. Well, how does Gizmo save the day then? Our, our favourite little, little gremlin. Well, Hull is the home to the largest Yorkshire pudding factory in the UK. So how course, about yeah. Gizmo corners them and pushes them all into the vats, and they all oh. turn into Yorkshire puddings. Send them out to the nation. Well, that's, that's grotesque. Oh. I love it. You can imagine the product placement already. Yeah. And as a cool marketing spin, you can only eat them after midnight. Definitely. <laughs> I love. I mean, I'm greenlighting this right now. This is this is amazing. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, you, you're oh. you're a genius at this stuff. This is why I call you. Any time. Gremlins SOS. They'll be rising for you. If you have a massive movie idea or any large files, transfer them with Massive, spelled M-A-S-V. Sign up for Massive today using massive.io forward slash filmmakers pod and get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. Can you transfer gremlins with Massive? Yeah. There's always gremlins on my computer. You want to get that looked at, mate? (laughs) Link is in the show notes. What's your directing style then, you know, in terms of working with people like Michael Smiley, Paul Kay, and your amazing cast that you had? Do you storyboard everything? Do you shot list everything? And then how do you work with actors within that? I storyboard some bits, uh, shot list everything. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that sort of happened on the tour was we were really behind in the first week. So we've been planning this film for years. So I think it'd be the same with you boys if you've had a project that you've been mulling over. Mm. You just know every out of it you know like it's all in your head you know you know exactly what you want to do but I think the problem we had was then I had to sort of adjust the style a little bit and be like okay we need to really simplify because I don't have time we we already didn't have enough time now we seriously don't have time to Mm. sort of do everything so it's going to be a lot of very simple you know single uh, wide single single you know so there were certain things I wanted to do you know in terms of I never have a dirty frame I sort of like that negative space in between the characters and if there is a dirty frame it's for a specific reason you know so smiley was always it's always center frame nice always always in the middle of the frame he's always domineering each scene that he's in and there's only two scenes really where anybody comes near him and that's the leader of the triplets they end up on the same level mm-hmm. and uh, Catherine uh, when she sort of chats with him and that, and that's her. So and in, in that scene, even trying to get that power dynamic of having Catherine standing up and Smiley sitting down, it's like, it's still he is in charge. So she is never quite center frame and he is bang straight in the middle of the frame. And then what that does do is free you up to work with the actors. So, and there's a lot of actors in this film and a lot of them are of varying different experience levels, you know, mm-hmm. Smiley's done shitloads. Evelyn, who's a play the Elvis impersonator, she'd done nothing. Right. Um, then you had, you know, I think, I think I talked about this before, is that the, the, the standoff scene, mm-hmm. we have all the characters there. You've yeah. got Julian Glover, who has mm. been in Bond, Harry Potter, you know, Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones. Yeah. It's a guy who's face melts in Indiana Jones. I mean, I was like looking at him thinking, I cannot believe Julian Glover. I know. I mean, after his face melt and he's back. What a recovery. <laughs> I honestly couldn't believe it. I was so like, a, but then you're working with the most experienced actor you can possibly imagine, mm-hmm. as well as someone who's never done this before. And then one of the other guys, a hair, he plays one of the farmers. He was basically like the Welsh Macaulay Culkin, best way to describe it. He was like a a big deal in Welsh language um, TV, a bit of a heartthrob. But he he sort of stopped acting for ages and then I brought him back for this. I remember being in, I was having a drink with him in in a pub and one of my mates came over who was a Welsh speaker and he goes, do you know Evan Reese?" I was like, yeah. He's like, you know, and he, his character name from this Welsh uh, soap as a kid. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize, I didn't even know he was an actor, but when he was a kid, like, so um, he was like this big deal and he came back, you know, he hadn't acted for a while, but he's brilliant. You know, I'd mm-hmm. have him in everything I do. Though. I loved him. Lovely. Lovely. Um, but then in terms of how you work, and it, it is like in terms of every act is different. You know, some actors want a lot more direction than others. Some need it more. Some, some you are, like with, with Gwyneth, playing the triplets, mm. I remember saying to her, like, the first couple of scenes we did, she was modulating what she was doing. So I was like, right. What do you mean by modulating? Sorry, just to explain. She was like, 
it was like she was self-editing almost in terms of like where where her tone was. Right. So I was like, right, I want you to go to a hundred, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, in terms of how you'd approach this. And we can dial it back if we need to, okay? But just trust me that why well, know what the that's all you're doing as a director on it. You just set in the tone. Yeah. You're trying to make sure the tone is even. Even if it's mad, at least it's even throughout, you know. That's another lazy criticism. It's like, oh, it's an uneven tone. It's like, well, I want to make sure that I keep the tone all the way through. So working with her was different. And she responds better with like music. So I'd made these playlists for her for each individual character. I remember working with her and it was like, she was at the wheel of the car and she was changing the character that, you know, she was swapping to a different triplet Uh and she was singing the song from one of the, she was tapping the wheel and singing the song from one of the playlists, you know, so they called Erica, Jessica and Glenda Mm -hmm. and the Glenda character is a bit nuts. She was singing one of the songs like to sort of get herself into it. So that's what she responded to. You know, Evelyn needed a bit more convincing because she was just in her own head too much because she hadn't done this before. And I remember, mm-hmm. I think I said to her, like, cause I'd seen her stand up and stuff. And I was like, you've already, you just got to remember, you've already done the things that made me want to give you this role. You can, she's already there. So mm-hmm. you can already do it. And that, I think that helped her get out of her shell a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. with, with Smiley, it was understanding that this was his first time as a lead and he took that responsibility really importantly. And it was working with that and understanding what that meant to him. Mm. And then with Julian, he was like, oh, do what you want? <laughs> to a certain extent, because he's like, dude, is unbelievably, you know, I just, we we rewrote lo- lots of bits of his dialogue when we were in the, the camper van. And- yeah, to get more out of him. You're like, yeah, he's here. It's yeah, absolutely yeah. pissing down. Win Wales. Let's yeah, give him more. Let's see what you can, because he's great, isn't he? So in terms of how you approach it, it is, it is understanding each person is different. There isn't a one catch-all thing. And it's being clear with your direction in terms of what it is you want him to do. But never, I ne- I would never ever be specific and say, I need line reads. I've never, I need you to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, we would discuss what the character needs. We, we kind of go around the houses and sort of like discuss and then get them to build the character themselves and realizing that it's a collaboration. It's not a diktat. You know, this is what, mm. this is what the character is. But I also want you to bring your own stuff to it, you know, and, and nice. feel like you can experiment. Is that what you said when you were auditioning or when you were, you know, it, it get, doing your first call with, I imagine you didn't audition Michael Smiley, Paul Kay, or no. uh, certainly not Julian Glover. Is that what you almost said to them as well, whether it's either audition or the meeting, the same thing, you know, because that pitch bit is the tough bit when you suddenly go, the actor's interested, now they want to speak to you. You've now got to go, okay, here's my, you know, how did you deal with that? I think I had a mad day in London where they sort of set up a load of meetings with each, I don't know, like we had no time. So I just went up and I just went crisscross London. I met Evelyn, Michael, Gary, Iwan. We just went all over the shop trying to meet them. And then mm. really what it is on the, at that level is selling them on me a little bit because mm-hmm. they'd write, read the script and they'd like the script. And that's why people were going to do it. Sure. We were a go project. So it's like, well, we are filming on this date. Here's the money. It's crap money. But this is what it's going to be. We're going. Yeah, this isn't a mess around. Yeah. So then he was just selling them on me a little bit. So he was trying to sort of understand who they were as people. You know, and we were smiley. Like, like I was knackered at the end of the day. I was absolutely exhausted. Go all the way around London, met loads of different actors, and meeting lots of people in one go and di- different situations is you know, and selling the same thing is quite taxing. Mm. And I came out of Brixton Station, and you know, I loved space as a kid, and then when I was younger. And then I just get a shout and I couldn't see where he was. And he just shout, Ryan! I looked out and in, in the middle of the road was Michael Smiley on a bike. So like tight, I was like, this is so bizarre. And we went for coffee with his, in one of the markets with this woman who, it was her birthday and she gave us some cake and it was just, it was a bonkers day. And then my car didn't work. So he had to pay for the tea. It was so cringe. Oh, wow, wow, but it, wow. But it was like, it, it was just selling them on me, like mm. who I am, what I want to do, what I want you to do and what our relationship will be like. Yeah. And yeah, thankfully they all said yes. So yeah, that's kind of how that worked. And then the only role we auditioned was Tab's role, um, which, which Darren, Darren Evans got. Darren yeah. Evans, and yeah. it was a really difficult role to audition. I think we, I ended up, I hate self tapes. Right. I, th- I think they are ridiculous for actors. I mean, cause it's always, you know, an actor usually in their flat, 
you know, they're panting on the radiator trying. Totally. They've got a roommate who's probably working in finance or, mm-hmm. or computing, reading lines. That it's just not fair and or an indicative way for them to, of course. to to audition, do you mean? So, and, and some people get really fortunate. I think I remember reading that, like, Josh Brolin or self-tape for... Did for Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, was it? Yeah. Oh, I, no, oh no Country for Men. No Country, that was it. Men, you know, Tarantino yeah, that, it, yeah. directs it and Robert Rodriguez shoots it. It's yeah. like, doing that dude is getting that job. Do you yeah. mean? You're not going to say no to that. Mm-hmm. But, but for most, you know, they'll be like this, you know, where the, uh, it's overexposed and it's, it's so... It's, such a, it's unfair hate, for actors, agree. Yeah, it's so unfair, so yeah. it's difficult. But the tab teams, I just said... I gave them a really bizarre note of what they wanted to do. And we just got these insane tapes and they were so clever. Some of them were like, we had one guy who just was standing there with a triangle getting ready for his moment in the, in the orchestra was playing and some audio and, he's getting, and things happened to him that sort of prevented him from, and then right at the very end, he managed to do it. It was really clever, do you know what I mean? And yeah. we had loads of stuff like that, but um, that was nice. the only role we auditioned. But really it was selling them on me that I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. a complete arsehole and that's usually what it is if they like the script they like the project and the producers and the team then it's about the director then selling them on not not being, not being an arsehole helps not being an arsehole and, and understanding the project and loving the project enough for that they trust you and as long as that trust's there they go right okay I can trust this person I'm not going to make me look a fool I'm going to have a decent time yeah and not just not just uh, making them look like a fool it, I think it's also being a communicator and someone that's open because uh, I, yeah. you know, I imagine people like you know Michael Smiley that have done so much stuff for someone to come along and then just tell them, nope, this is my way or the highway would be incredibly frustrating and and probably their worst nightmare. So to to know that you're open minded and they can have an, a conversation backwards and forwards, I think is is you know incredibly important as well as attitude as well. Mm. Yeah, really I mean, I, I I wouldn't know if I don't know if you agree, but like that's way more fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do you mean it's a lot yeah. more fun to do that way? So um, yeah, directors, everyone's different. Do you mean like? But for me, that was I want to have fun as well. Yeah. Do you mean we are incredibly yeah. fortunate to be doing this for a living? Unbelievably fortunate to be doing this for a living. So you're so right. You're let's so have right. let's have. It's so stressful and it's so hard and blah 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 blah. Treat everyone nicely and have fun, and you yeah. should be okay then. I love really? that attitude. What can you remember your first day? Because obviously directing your f- feature for the first time on that first day, it's like, it's happening. Do you remember that moment or were you just, yeah, let's go? Can you remember it at all now looking back? That's a good question. I don't, I don't really remember the specifics of that day. I remember the night before yes. thinking, I, I was like, oh my God, what if I hate this? Like, it's <laughs> yeah. taken so long to get here. What if I get on set? I absolutely end the day hating it. And I didn't. I absolutely I just remember loving it. I remember thinking, oh, you're feeling like I don't know if I don't know if I necessarily believe in like fate or, or fatalism or anything like that, but or if there are things you're supposed to be doing with your life. But it did feel like whether I'm any good here or not, like this is at least what I want to be doing. I should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and that is validating a little bit. And because you only, you, you know, if I could be saying this to you, I could be lying to myself, really. So it's, you know, sure. it's just being able to honestly say that is really important, you know. And, and um, that is the thing. I think I remember the night more than I remember the day, to be honest with you. And I think um, it was uh, just a small amount of fear. But then just thought, you can't, you, know, you can't be wrong as a director. You're making, it's make-believe. You're making stuff up. You can't be, you maybe might not like it. But you're not mm-hmm. wrong. You can't be right or wrong. You know, you can be right or wrong in the way you treat people, but then mm-hmm. that's being a human being. Do you know what I mean? Like, you should, that shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't change you just being inept. a director. <laughs> you just, just be rubbish. Be yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could just be rubbish. You could be. But, but I, I, do, I do think, you know, what you're saying about the night before, uh, like, I don't know what you, it's like for you guys, but I, I find there's a bit of a calm before the storm kind of feeling, like the, the stress is in, like, the build-up weeks. And by the, by the time you're on the night before... You know, like what's going to happen is going to happen. You've just sort of got to, you know, you've prepared, get a good night's sleep. Um, Try you anyway. Know, it's it's mm. game time. I it didn't is. get a good night's sleep, but I don't remember. <laughs> no, no, I didn't get a good night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone get a good night's sleep before their first day of shoot? I, I don't doubt it. The first ever. No, I don't know. I remember one thing I did that really did help. And I've said this before, but I did a video blog every night l- prep on a shooting and in post, like literally. And it was the best thing I could have done because all those things that spin around your head when you put your head on that pillow and go, oh my God, I haven't done that. Oh my God, what's going to happen with that? And that costume. I'd said it all like as a therapy session to the camera 
And therefore, when my head hit the pillow, I went, you've just said it all out loud. You can now sleep. And it really, really helped. It's also really interesting watching back now and looking at myself and going, you mentalist, <laughs> you're far too stressed. But it, it's invaluable. It's amazing behind the scenes footage as well. But I think uh, that really helped me. And whether you do that as a, uh, just to even talk it through in your own head, it's almost like there's someone else there. Did really made a big difference to take away that stress. Is there someone else there in your head? <laughs> Yeah, of course. Right? <laughs> Haven't you got in a dom? <laughs> what have you learned, do you think, that you're going to take to your second film as a director from this first one that you might not do again? Or good, you know, an advice if you can give any, because it's always difficult, like you say. I think like technically there's things, you know, that I would do differently, that I would want to do differently. You know, I think one of the big problems we had was we didn't have a post-production schedule. Right in place so this is going to get techy right we shot at uh 8k mm -hmm. yep on a, a red i think no one wants it at 8k at all at the moment well yeah and the reality is when we came to grade you know and the thing with 8k is you end up having basically means every image is bigger than it needs to be basically so yeah. you need more and more hard drives which are expensive you know and even on a, on a film like ours that was important you know so what it ended up meaning was when we came to sort of finish the grades they were just like oh we'll only do it at two because we're not mm -hmm. scanning it at eight and the frustration about that was huge you know it was like you know that money if we'd if we'd been more if we'd scheduled this earlier and we knew where we were going that money could have, that we wasted on multiple hard drives could have been spent on squibs and you know, dust, little dust uh, bombs and stuff like that sort of mean that I wouldn't have to use CGI. I mean, I think for the next film, I'm not a fan of CGI really, but the next one, I definitely wouldn't use it if I could, if I could help it. You know, that's a thing that is really, really difficult. But that's like technical stuff in terms of, you know, that I would like to sort of do for the next one, which is, and I'm not like criticizing the graders or anyone like I was just one of those things yeah, where we, we made things. a mistake, yeah. you know, yeah. it was our mistake. Yeah. So did, did you deliver it in, in 4K or 2K in the end? Two. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. Like, I mean, you know, often a good a good thing to do if you want to, um, you know, give yourself the options for, you know, 4K later on is just to keep the keep all the project files. But, you know, if you've shot it in 4 or 5K, then you've got those options. And that's something mm. I've sort of been through recently. Especially in the future, because you never know what wants 8K or... Yeah, like Netflix might want it in 4K at some point. Well, that's the thing. Like Netflix originals have to be 4. Yeah. So that's, that's what I was trying to sort of shoe arm in like yeah keep keep it and, and you know in the future that might become a, a reality and then you know you can reevaluate this conversation you'll be like i did it yeah. i knew all along <laughs> i knew all along it's worth it all that money on hard drives. One, of, one of the things that happens is particularly if you're low budget is um which will drive cinematographers up the wall is if you're shooting at 8k you can reframe quite oh yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah but the eye lines are wrong <laughs> so i was sort of trying to say to the greeters that look there's some scenes where we've punched in and we've reframed so if you scan them in at two and then punch in it's going to be even less than two do you mean mm -hmm. so yeah. can we can we get them in at four and they were like yeah we'll do that you know they did us a big favor in that oh, respect so but things like that it sounds when, when you're on such a tight budget that stuff is really important you know mm -hmm. um and it is a bit esoteric and filmmakery, right? But it is something, it's not a mistake I would normally have made if I was in charge of, if I knew everything that was going on, you know? So, mm. but I think in terms of as a director, I think the one thing going forward I don't want to lose is just like, just how much I absolutely loved every second of it. You know, because that gets you through, like mm. the, the, the months afterwards of frustration and arguments and, you know, things happened and we ended up having to replace the editor and it, it, things become sort of like personal relationships kind of break down and mm. it, it's, it's not through anyone's fault really. It's not a personal thing. It's just a creative thing sometimes. And, and you're trying to manage that as well as you can. And, but the thing that sustains you is that just absolute joy about what it is that you're doing because that is what will get you through the years and years it can take you to get yeah. a film made. You know, some people don't, and some people are, are like, they can churn them out. Uh, you know, Ben Wheatley's done like 10 films in 10 years or something. Mm -hmm. He seems yeah. to be able to churn them out, but from everybody else, it's a bit harder, I think. So yeah, that's the thing I would probably is just don't lose sight of the love of what it is that you're doing because then it becomes a job and a chore and it's not worth the time and effort and the crap pay. And the pain. <laughs> <That's a joke. laughs> yeah, and the pain, it's not worth it. You know, like you've got to love it, I think. Because it is the best thing. I mean, for me, you know, 
I used to play them. I loved absolutely every second of it. I loved it. And you can tell, and it comes across and the toll is brilliant and is out now go grab a copy uh, go support indie filmmaking it's so important and find Ryan on Twitter at R-A-H Film R-A-H Film find him there and say well done and say you know you really enjoyed the film but also you enjoyed the podcast and you enjoyed him talking uh, and thank him very much for coming on and spending his time talking to us and you filmmakers and giving you some amazing actually advice even though you said you, you weren't going to give advice actually you gave some brilliant stuff and make sure you pay your toll to independent film oh, and Jesus, watch it. Jesus. <laughs> back. You can use that one too. <laughs> I'm going to be telling at that point the dumb cut out. Oh, <laughs> God. No, let's go then. Is it? <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. And remember, you can go out there and make your indie film, know who your audience is, and get out there and do it. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well to make an indie film, just as Ryan has done, then you have to send that elevator. Oh, Jesus. Elevator back down. <laughs> you have to send the elevator back down. Thank you so much for listening. You've all been superstars. Ryan Hooper, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. We will see you all next Tuesday. Take care. Go make your indie films. And go watch indie films. Toll is out now. Bye. Bye. Bye.